Thank you, Pod. Do keep um, Psalm 34 open. I mean, if, if, you've, if this is your first one in the Psalms, one of the things we're trying to do over the summer is, is think through what a, a right and godly response is to living in this world, to the, the reality of the highs and lows of living in a broken world where, where we get stuff wrong and we suffer and people fight. Um, and how do we respond to that? What does that look like? So I'm going to pray that the Lord would help us from Psalm 34 to, to do that, to learn and to grow and to develop in that as we, as we relate to him. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for these psalms that we have in our hands. Thank you they don't just speak to us, but they, they speak for us. They're a model for us in how we live, how we relate. They're a model for us as we suffer and enjoy. I pray that you would speak to us and pray that by your spirit you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're, um, we're a pretty cynical lot, aren't we? People like us in our culture, we, we take a, a lot of persuading, an awful lot of persuading that something is, is true or, or trustworthy or useful or, or worthwhile. Perhaps it's a good thing. So it's the little button in front of you on the screen that flashes and wobbles and tries to get your attention and tells you to click because you are the millionth visitor on this site and, and that means you've won a million pounds if you just, just click here. No, no seriously. Or it's the email with interesting typos that comes and tells you to, if you can quietly wire vast sums of money um, to you, if you just give us your account details, please. We have this money waiting for you, and if you would just send us your bank account details, then, then we can wire them across. Or it's the relentless PPI phone calls. You just don't bother with your phone at about five o'clock in the evening. Or, or numerous other scam schemes, it seems, to try and dupe us, to, to steal stuff from us. So we need to be careful. Perhaps it's right that we're cynical. Perhaps it's right that we don't trust easily. But that has knock-on everyday implications. It impacts all kinds of things. Some of you will know, in a previous life, I worked in market research, and companies pay vast amounts of money to see what you think of them to work out how to get you to consider them, to, to buy them even better, to buy their product rather than another one. And it's not just about listing the product benefits, it drives better, it cleans every stain, it, it gets rid of spots. Now it's about a relationship. Relationships with a, an, a brand that seek to break down our hard-hearted scepticism. They know we're cynics. Think of politics. We've been let down too many times. We just don't trust them anymore. Often their, their policies don't come to pass as they promise. Their, their private lives show them to be untrustworthy. We're, we're cynics. And what about for me? For me in my job, seeking to preach a message, to preach the gospel. Am I just peddling another product over you? Am I just trying to make a power play, wanting to you to pour out your energy and time and trust and allegiance and money? Or for you? 
wherever the Lord's put you, as you seek to speak for Christ, as you seek to live for Christ during the week, how do you faithfully and clearly and gently, in this kind of a culture, tell people of Jesus? Everyone's a cynic. We're cynical. No wonder our colleagues and friends are. Someone knocks on the door and it doesn't matter what they're selling you, whether it's preaching or politics or products, we just say, not today, thank you. Not interested. I'll take it. Our question is then, how is, as the people of God, how as the church, do we proclaim Christ to those around us? How do we faithfully speak in a way that people will actually listen? That actually has traction, that actually means something. It was the famous Sri Lankan minister and evangelist who who said, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I think in Psalm 34, we'll see that King David said that thousands of years before. David is speaking to us as someone who's actually been there. Someone who, who, who has suffered and has found God to be faithful, and he is calling us to try and to taste and to see and to enjoy the Lord, to enjoy God as he does. Psalm 34 is personal recommendation. That goes a long way to beating back cynicism. So first point from Psalm 34 is the call to enjoy the Lord. Zoom in with me at verse 8, and you see something of a summary as to what David wants us to do. It's very clear. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. He says to us, the God of the Bible is real. He is good, he protects his people, he genuinely makes a difference, a real difference to real situations. He, he satisfies. This isn't just a theory or an idea or a, or a poem that we've come up with to try and get us through scary worlds. This is real. This was personally true for David and David longs for us to trust him and to follow him, to learn those lessons that he's learned. When did David learn them? When did he learn that God is good, that we should taste and see that? Well, have a look at the little heading of the psalm. Remember those headings there? They were there in the original text. They are not just little sort of section summaries that we sometimes get in our Bible. No, these songs were not written in vacuums. They were written in different contexts, in different situations. And they give us real insight into where these words come from. The actual situation. So do you see, it is of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech who drove him out and he left. So you can track it back and it seems that the psalm comes from the beginning of David's adult life. It's an extraordinary time when he was captured. There's a bit of confusion over the the actual name of the king when it actually was, but it comes from a season when David was a a rising star in Israel, in the neighbourhood. And he is standing, it seems, before the king of Gath, and he is defenceless. He is out of his depth. Have a listen to the situation. But the servants of the king said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David is tens of thousands. 
David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of the king of Gath, so he feigned insanity in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. The king said to his servants, look at this man, he's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? See, it's a bit weird. He's captured and he pretends he's lost his mind, which means he ends up keeping his head. And so later on, he looks back on this situation and he writes the psalm. Later he can say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just notice three things with me as we look at the first half together. I want you to see what David actually did in the dark times. I want you to see what God's response is. And then how David reacts to God's response. So firstly, what does David do? Well, have a look at the verbs with me in verse 4 through to verse 7. Verse 4, I sought the Lord. Verse 5, those who look to him. Verse 6, this poor man called. How does David deal with hardship? Just as Psalm 3 we saw last week, he goes to the Lord. How easily we miss that. Maybe we're cynical, maybe we're, we're cynical and we just think God is not real. Or if he is, then he's not interested in someone like me with my problems and my situations or... Or maybe it's just that our hearts are hard and we are proud, self-sufficient people and so we are very slow to go to him. We want to sort stuff out by ourselves first. But David seeks the Lord. He is urging us to trust him. To trust him that we have one who is committed to his people. When he puts it in verse 6, when we are poor, then we are to seek him, to look to him, to call to him. In the mess of life, in that situation, go to him. It becomes our natural, everyday, knee-jerk response. That letter comes and we pray. That friendship goes sour. We pray. That phone call that we've been dreading, we pray. Seek him, look to him, call to him. What does David do in the dark times? He goes to the Lord. And what is the Lord's response? Have a look at these these beautiful words from David's lips. He he praises God for for rescuing him. Verse 4, he delivered me. Verse 5, they're made radiant, faces unashamed. Verse 6, the Lord hears him and saves him. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps and delivers. Now, David wasn't passive. We've seen that. He's got a slightly strange plan before the king. But he's under no doubt that it is God responding as he's rescued. God hears and delivers and rescues and saves and protects his people in trouble. Have a humble confidence that in that situation, God is with you. He's not cold, he's not detached, he's not uninterested. He is with his people, with them in their sufferings. And he will deliver finally. 
In fact, as the Bible story unfolds, that becomes increasingly stark. In fact, it's so stark that his, his ultimate rescue of his people, his ultimate deliverance, comes at an extraordinary personal cost. And as he deals with his people's sin, so at the cross, the climax of God's work in his world, he takes on flesh and he dies in the place of people like us. God is not detached. People who are in deep danger, people who need deliverance from the Lord. And as we trust in his work on the cross, so verse 8, we take refuge in him. I know that we pretty much always have folk who wouldn't call themselves Christians here on a Sunday morning. Maybe just looking in on Christian things, maybe chewing over Christian things, maybe dragged along by a friend, but... I'd love to urge you to trust him. Trust him. The danger for you and for each of us is not anger of the king of Gath. It's the God, the king of the universe, his perfect justice and anger against our sin. Against the damage that sin does to his people, to his world, to his creation, to everything. And God's rescue in Jesus is the answer. Here is the one in whom we take refuge. Here is the the extent to which God is involved in his world and in the lives of his people. So David calls out to the Lord. The Lord rescues him, but then how does he react? Have a look at verses 1 to 3. It's, It's a glimpse into David's heart and it's almost infectious. He hits us with his praise. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. It's it's personal praise from David, verses 1 and 2, which then spreads into corporate praise. Come with me and sing. Come and praise him. Come and, verse 8, as we've seen, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and enjoy him. And don't you want to ask what his secret is? If you're anything like me, your heart might well be cold and hard and slow to praise and sluggish in wanting even to glorify him. I take it the answer from Psalm 34 at least is when we grasp the reality of the danger that we're in, the genuine reality of the terrible danger, And then we know the power of our kind and generous and good God to deliver. When we taste and see, then perhaps our hearts will will bubble up and bubble over as his does. Exuberant joy and praise. Maybe we'll be those who, who naturally day by day speak and share of what God has done. For whom verse 8 is reality. Who We say to others, taste and see that the Lord is good. I've experienced that myself. Why don't you? Verse 8 is a striking verse, isn't it? It's a verse about satisfaction. A verse about enjoying God, of delighting in Him, of experiencing Him, which for many Christians even, I think, sounds alien. One friend recently wrote this. He said, how unsettling that the Bible puts it like that. If the psalmist had said, see that the Lord is good, 
we might comfort ourselves with the delusion that the God can be observed at a safe distance, but we must taste in order to see. And tasting can't be done remotely or at arm's length or by proxy. Tasting is impossible without coming close to the food in question and opening ourselves. It requires that we pick something up and put it into our mouths and onto our tongues and we swallow it so that it goes deep into the darkness and then changes us so that whether we like it or not, we are no longer quite the people we once were. I wonder if sometimes in churches we can focus in only on what we know. And it's all a bit distant and a bit theoretical and it's about ideas. It can be easy to slip into that, can't it, as we sit in on sermons or do Bible study ourselves or go to home groups or whatever. They're just there to educate us. We have in our mind that we want to, to get a better handle on the passage. We want to understand truth better. And those things are good and important and right, but it must be more than that. Mustn't it? We can miss that simple and vital aspect of enjoying him, of tasting and seeing that he is good, of our, of our affections. It's a thrill for me at Magdalen Road that our little kind of tagline as a church from well before my time is that we are exhorted to delight in God. Remember Magdalen Road Church delighting in God, displaying his glory. And admittedly sometimes that's a fight to delight in and to enjoy him as we ought. But when we do that so the world sees how good he is, So we display his glory to those looking in. Or even if you remember the four little things that kind of boil down to some of the stuff we're about, they're actually on your postcards, on your seats, that we love, reach, build, send, but love comes first. We're not just simple activists for activism's sake, but love is the fuel. Love is the basis, it's the foundation for reaching, building, sending. We long for that love to bear fruit, to ripple out, to make a difference. So verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. But then what comes next? What would you expect? Perhaps a list of how good God is. Maybe David waxing lyrical on God's attributes, his beauty, his character, his past faithfulness, his track record, how amazing God is. What do we get? I think it's very striking. What we get is the call to fear the Lord. That's the theme that continues for the rest of the psalm. And we say, hang on, I thought we were meant to enjoy him. We are meant to taste and see that he is good. Now we are to, now we're to fear him? Aren't they the opposite? Can you do both at the same time? Ah, this is just another example of where the Bible contradicts itself. No, how about this? When we really grasp how great he is, when we taste and see and experience and enjoy him, then we want it all to be about him. All of our lives, who we are, what we're about, everything, the foundations change, the whole shebang, it it turns upside down. Everything is different. God's not just there as some personal spiritual mechanic who 
who we call on when life's in a mess and to come and sort things out. No, no, we've seen how good he is and how faithful he is. We've tasted and seen and enjoyed and we realise it's his world and it's all about him and it's not about us and everything is reordered. Everything's different. Now maybe it's not surprising then that fear of the Lord and living a righteous life are, are tightly linked in the second half as well. They go hand in hand. And you know when lives are genuinely transformed? When people are genuinely changed, when priorities change. So people take notes. So the cynics turn and look, haven't really got an answer. Why fear? Why are we to fear him? Look at verse 8 to 11 with me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Why fear? Because in God's world, to live right, you've got to get your fears right. You see, back in verse 4, David had been afraid. I sought the Lord, he answered me, he delivered me from all my fears. It's unsurprising, he's been before the king of Gath. He's killed thousands of his men, he's fearing for his life. Of course he's afraid, but he's realised now that all the other little fears pale into insignificance when the fear of the Lord is central. Reverence, respect. Reordering of life. We're to fear him more than the other things we're fearing. We can enjoy him and delight in him and love him and experience him, but we're not equals. He's to be feared. And you see, when you fear him as you ought, it's not that the other fears in your life just disappear. That would be naive to think that. I think that's not true. But maybe they shrink. Maybe we get some perspective. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You see, when we fear God first, when that foundational fear is in place, when that awe and respect, that trust, that reverence, then the other fears gain perspective. But how does that fear work out into daily life? Well, David says you look different. In the different situations that you've been placed in, that one fear will make a difference. Your life will change. You will live lives of wisdom and obedience and righteousness. You will live lives that are good. And as the psalm progresses, it sounds more and more like Proverbs. I think they're meant to. We're moving, if you like, from thanksgiving to wisdom. 
David's painting a picture for us of what living a wise life looks like. And, of course, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But what is that wise life? Verse 13, have a look first. You fear the Lord and you will keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. You've tasted and enjoyed how good God is. Well, now fear him and be careful how you speak. Speak in such a way that others looking in and listening know what you've enjoyed and what he's like. Our fear of the Lord impacts how we speak. And you see, what we say, the words that come out, the grumbling and the sniping and the moaning and frustration, it says so much about us and our hearts and the impact that our love for the Lord really has. You've tasted and enjoyed him and keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. But it's more than that, it's what we do as well. Verse 14. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You tasted and enjoyed how good God is? Well, now fear him and live in such a way that others looking in, others watching your life, see whom you have enjoyed and what he is like. It changes how you live. Gone are the shady paths of the past. Gone are the old ways. Evil has no place here anymore. That is not you anymore. You have tasted and seen that he is good. And so like your Father in heaven, you're to be one who does good, who who loves and pursues peace. And that kind of deep down daily transformation pops the bubbles of cynicism in those around us. People listen. People can't help but listen. And live that kind of life, live that kind of wise, fear the Lord type life, you're described as righteous. And, verse 12, you will see many good days. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. Verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them, he delivers them from all their troubles. Verse 19, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Verse 22, the Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. He says righteous people will be rescued. The Lord will look after them. But for those who are foolish, for those who don't fear the Lord, who are evil, verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. Verse 21, evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. Now, you could look at somewhere like verse 17 and then look out at the world and scratch your head because you think, well, it says there that the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. But I look out and I see the world is a mess. And I see righteous people. I see brothers and sisters in Christ this morning suffering. So a couple of caveats. 
The first is to say the world is a mess. Do the righteous suffer? Yes. Do God's people find life hard? Yes, they do. Do evil people get away with it? Yes, sometimes. Come back later in August and hear Psalm 73 and you'll see the psalmist bemoans how healthy and attractive and successful and how beautiful the unrighteous are. But the other thing to say as well is this is how wisdom literature in the Bible works. Wise living now, it gives us principles for daily life. Principles for life now, but with eternal consequences. They matter now, but they matter forever. He is telling us about wisdom in how to live in God's world. Which means, believer, this is how we are to live. Your speech, what you say matters. Your life, what you do matters. It shows your fear of God. And you can expect some of this now. The Lord will look after his people. But this side... Of Jesus coming back, the world is broken and there will be hardships and good people will not always win and evil people will sometimes win. But finally, finally God's verdict will be seen. When Jesus comes back, finally his people will be protected. Those who have taken refuge in him will not be condemned. Those who are his will not be punished. And we're cynical and we say, really? Is that really the answer? Is that the hope you've got for me now? And I want to say Jesus will come back because he was raised from the dead. Nobody believed the resurrection would happen, but there he was. Nobody believes he will come back, but we join the dots. He is coming back and we can take great comfort in one day we shall see that. But for now, the challenge for us is there in how we live. As those who have tasted and seen that he is good, verse 8, we are those who fear him, and therefore we are those whose lips and speech is impacted and whose life is impacted. The little things matter. Be careful what you say. Be careful how you live. But remember this. Remember this side of the cross in these bodies when we mourn over our sin because we do fail and we will fail and we will go on failing. Remember that he is kind and we have the righteous one in whom we are found, whose obedience is ours, the one in whom we take refuge. Jesus deals with our unrighteousness in forgiving us but is changing us and pouring out his spirit into our hearts. You see, we can take comfort, not in our record, but in his record. What's the answer then to cynicism? How do we live in a way that is persuasive? How do we call others to follow Christ? Well, firstly, from the place of experience, verse 8, those who have tasted and seen and enjoyed him. But then the place of transformation too. Others see and see our lives changed because of Jesus. They see the difference that Jesus makes. As we finish, there's an evangelist called Keith Miller. 
who tells the story um, of his ministry in a book called The Habitation of Dragons. And there's a story in there about a guy called Joe. Joe was a man, a man who was having an affair, and he was out of town planning to meet his mistress. And he just happens to bump into three friends as he's out of town. They were also out of town. But they were planning to go and hear Keith Miller preach. And they twist his arm, they persuade Joe to come along, and he heads along, and amazingly, after one message, he gives his life to Jesus. Keith Miller receives a letter about a year later from Joe. Tells him how he's been living out his Christian life. He's stopped his adulterous affair, he's turned his life around, and in many ways his life is much, much better, and people were noticing. They had seen this transformation in him. And he wanted to talk to his friends and his colleagues of Christ, the gospel of grace. But he was struggling to do so. So he says, Keith, Keith, can you come and chat to my friends about Jesus? And it was a long way. And it was a fair bit of hassle. But Keith Miller didn't want to discourage him. And so he says, yes. On the day of the event, his plane is delayed. He is whisked from the airport to the address. And he kind of walks out to, to speak to so not just a dozen people, but around 800. 800 of Joe's friends and colleagues who, who have seen him transformed, seen his life change. In Psalm 34 language, seen how his fears have been transformed. And so his lips and his life. And Miller writes this. He says, I realized in that moment that all the Christian promotions and programs, all the evangelistic campaigns, crusades around the world are virtually worthless to motivate people to become Christians unless they see some ordinary person like Joe. Joe finding new hope and a new way to live in Christ. And then they listen. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we want to be faithful in reaching those around us. And so we long that we might, each of us together as a church and as individuals, taste and see that you are good, that we might know your, the refuge that we have in you we might know the truth of the cross afresh, that we might know your love for your people. And as we taste and see and experience and enjoy you, that we might be those whose fears are transformed, that we fear you more than we fear what others will think. That our fear of you puts our little fears into perspective. And so that we might live that righteous life that we've read of. That it might transform how we speak, We might be careful with our words. We might transform our lives, we pray. I thank you that when we get it wrong, and we do and we will, we have the one with the perfect record in whom we take refuge. Thank you that you forgive us and you're kind because of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.